According to RP on WJMS Media, powered by Black Ivy Media, it's your girl Rita Pierre, your host, and as always, I hope you guys are striving, thriving, and surviving in the streets. So we are at the end of the month. October was filled with so many awarenesses. We had so many episodes that was raising awareness on national women and small businesses, Uh, depression awareness. We had an episode on breast cancer awareness. And today we are closing out the month with domestic violence awareness. One thing I will remind you all is that we raise awarenesses during the respective months because it's an opportunity to do so, but that these issues happen 365 days a year. Every day, somebody is getting depressed. Every day, somebody is being diagnosed with breast cancer. Every day, somebody is experiencing domestic violence awareness. And I would dare say, if it's not every day that a black woman is starting a business, they are thinking about getting into small business. And so I really hope that you guys learned a lot this month through our episodes. Remember that they are always available for replay on any platform where you enjoy your podcast. Today, we are not going to get into our preliminaries because we have such a an amazing show raising awareness for domestic violence. We have an amazing guest by the name of Nisha Himes, and she is going to talk about her experience being a domestic violence victim and now survivor. And she's going to talk about her organization that is not just raising awareness for domestic violence, but is actually providing resources to victims of domestic violence. And so I definitely wanted to allot as much time as possible for this important conversation, because at the end of the day, somebody who's tuning in is experiencing domestic violence. And if they are not somebody who knows somebody is experiencing domestic violence. And so the information that we provide, the conversations that we have on this platform is not just for you to hold for yourself, but it's for you to share to your community. And that's one of the ways where we can better raise awareness, not just for domestic violence, but for all of the issues that you know we face, all of the awarenesses that we are highlighting Um, having the conversations, sharing the information, that is how we start raising awareness on a broader scale and on a larger scale. So no preliminaries today, but we are going to be moving on to the meat of the show. All right, everyone, I'm here with my very special guest, Nisha. Nisha, please say hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) You're welcome, Nisha. Thank you for making the time to, you know, have this conversation about domestic violence as 
obviously you're well aware, but maybe some people who are just now tuning in are not aware that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so every year we want to make sure that we dedicate an episode to raise awareness for domestic violence. So thank you for just being here and engaging with us. Yes, I'm excited. It's important to have these conversations. So I just appreciate you for continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So, Disha, I want to go, you know, to the basics. I love, you know, going to the basics because, again, not everybody is aware of what domestic violence is. And even those who may, you know, have come across it, everybody needs a refresher at some point. Right. So if we can just maybe go through some of that basic discussion of what domestic violence is. Sure. So in a nutshell, domestic violence is the deliberate intimidation, violent and abusive behavior inflicted by one person against another is used as a part of a methodical pattern of power and control. And that's the whole premise of domestic violence about controlling your victim. It often occurs between spouses, ex-dating partners, and that's where it's called the intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. But it can occur also between parents, children, siblings, Uh, What we talk about most, though, is intimate partner violence with the current dating partners, spouses, ex-partners, and so forth. Okay. And so I want to kind of get the listeners a little familiar with you and, you know, what your connection to domestic violence is. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, you know, uh, what you do, where you're from, and your connection. Sure. So my name is Nisha Himes. I am originally from New Jersey and I reside here in Hampton Roads area of Virginia. I am a mom of two and I am a domestic violence survivor. I dated a person for about five years or so. And this is somebody that I dated after the relationship ended with my children's father. And it was still very difficult to get away from this person, even not having children with them, but I experienced various forms of abuse throughout the five years that I was with him, including verbal, emotional, psychological, and physical. And I think that's one of the misconceptions about domestic violence is that there's only one or two types. You know, we think about the physical or we think about the verbal sometimes, but psychological abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, there's so many different types, which I'm sure we'll touch on later, it just has just as great an impact as if someone is putting their hands on you every single day. But in going through that relationship, it was just very difficult. And when I was able to get the courage to leave, I started sharing my story maybe a year and a half later via my gift of, I do spoken word poetry. So the first time I told my story essentially was on a stage and it wasn't to bring awareness, so to speak. It was just to say, look, this is what I've been going through for years and y'all didn't know. And this is the only way I know how to express it. So I think it was a different way to bring awareness because what started happening after that was that people were contacting me to perform at places like churches and schools and domestic violence awareness events. And I started speaking out more and more. And then what began happening from there was like a domino effect where survivors started reaching out to me. People in the relationships currently trying to leave started reaching out to me. And I wanted to get into that realm, not even realizing that it was advocacy. 
And so I started applying to jobs at places like prosecutor's offices, shelters and things like that. And the common thing that I kept getting told is that I didn't have the right experience because I didn't have a degree. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'm all for higher education, I'm in school now, but there's no piece of paper, no degree on this earth that can prepare you to survive domestic violence or or holds more weight than someone's lived experience, someone who has actually lived it and had to pull themselves out of it. So I started my nonprofit organization, which is called Grow Foundation, which stands for Girls Recognizing Our Worth. And we assist victim survivors of domestic violence with rebuilding their lives after abuse, survivors of all different shapes, colors, ages, backgrounds. We also do a lot of community outreach and awareness. And I also have Nisha Christine Consulting, which is a domestic violence awareness and education consulting business, where I go around and speak at different schools. I speak to police officers. I speak to churches and businesses and wherever to facilitate domestic violence awareness educations, teaching them about what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, what it sounds like, who it affects. And just throughout this whole process, I mean, from starting my nonprofit organization, I eventually did begin working at a prosecutor's office. So I was doing that simultaneously. Mm -hmm. I was a domestic violence victim advocate at a prosecutor's office. And then I helped start the first domestic violence unit for an area for an area law enforcement agency. So I am doing this advocacy, do it from the community side with my nonprofit, but also understand systems-based advocacy within the prosecutor's office, the police department, and so on and so forth. So, and, and I still do spoken word and bring awareness that way too. So something I always say is I will not shut up my ex used to tell me all the time to shut up, that my words didn't matter, right. that what I had to say would never matter. And now I just use my experience to, as cliche as it sounds, turn pain into purpose and bring awareness in every way, shape or form that I can. I absolutely love your story as painful, I know, as it is. But I think that it's so important um, because as I had mentioned to you offline, I was a domestic violence prosecutor for several years and I'm very familiar with the victim service advocates. And I can tell you that the work that you were doing um, in the prosecutor's office, I actually, I don't even have the words for it because I know like how critical um, that role is. Um, But I definitely commend you for, you know, being a light to others and starting your nonprofit organizations and your consulting organizations, because you know, people, I guess, tend to think that maybe domestic violence is not as prominent as it used to be because maybe they're not hearing about it or they're not, you know, seeing, um, you know, I don't know, they're not seeing signs. Like, I think people have like this preconceived idea as to what domestic violence should look like. And if they don't see black and blues, then nothing is going on. And so I think it's really critical to have individuals who are advocates, you know, raising awareness, but also really empowering women who are currently going through uh, women and men really, right. That are currently going through these situations. So um, I really commend you for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome. Um, And interesting enough, too, you mentioned uh, the spoken word aspect, because I know that um, that has been an outlet for many as well, too, to share their story and to express their pain and to raise awareness through spoken word. And so um, I think that's an avenue that 
maybe many people who are on the outside when they hear spoken word artists, um, you know, sharing, sometimes I think they, they don't understand that that's actually, you know, the real life pain that they've experienced that they're sharing through their art and that they're raising awareness through their art. So I really love that you um, highlighted that aspect of your work as well, too. Yes, I think it's important. Art is such a healing mechanism, regardless of what type of trauma or anything that you've gone through, whether it's domestic violence, sexual assault, um, grief and loss, divorce, or what, whatever. I mean, art, just whether it's writing, it's music, it's dancing, it's just so organically healing that I didn't realize how much it would do for me in my journey as a survivor. That's why I always incorporate it so much when I talk to other survivors as well, just encourage them to write, journal, things like that, just to express their feelings in a safe space. Right, right. So one question that, you know, often comes to mind when individuals are thinking about, you know, victims of domestic violence is why do victims of domestic violence stay or return to their abuser? And so I want to see if you can maybe break that down a little bit, because I think that those who are on the other side of the fence, as I like to say, struggle with that. And so sometimes it brings up this question as well, is there really domestic violence going on? Are they really wanting assistance? Are they really wanting help? And I feel like it it uh, takes away whatever empathy or sympathy one might give. Um, so if you could maybe expand on that a little. Yes, definitely. So that's the question we always hear. Why don't you just leave? If it was that bad, why would you stay? kind of thing. And honestly, it's something that I said years, years, years ago in my early 20s, having a friend go through it. And I remember asking her, just why don't you just leave? And I cringe at that because now I know in doing this work, why her wall went up and she didn't talk to me about it anymore. And for one, I mean, it's so accusatory in a sense, it puts the onus on the survivor mm -hmm. to make the decision to leave something, leave a situation that is completely terrifying and fix their life, so to speak. And not only fix their life, but if they have children and or pets, they need to just get to a place where they can just find that courage to get up and just start over. And it's not that easy. First and foremost, the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence is when they're trying to leave or have recently left. That is the highest chance of lethality for them. So if you are in fear for your life or your children's life or your family's life or your pet's life or whatever, and you have to make the decision, if I leave, this can happen. It's, it's a very difficult decision to make. We talked about how abuse is about power and control when a survivor is making the choice to leave and that abuser finds out about that and learns that they are losing that power and that control, then the level of violence that they use to keep that power and control increases in severity and in frequency. So it's like, okay, I did all these things to this person and they were staying, but now they're still finding it in them to get out. Well, now, you know what? I have to take it up a notch. I have to do it more. I have to do it where it hurts them 
more physically and emotionally and spiritually and psychologically or whatever. And that is a very difficult thing to break from. Also, the fact that a lot of times resources, domestic violence is so prevalent, the service providers can only do but so much. So what is a survivor to do when there's no shelter, when their support system is hours away, when they don't have money because they've been abused financially, which is prevalent in 99% of domestic violence cases. And for years with homelessness being the result of, you know, most women and children who are homeless, domestic violence is one of the top leading causes. Mm-hmm. You know, then I always say, once they get you mentally, the rest is easy. If you are broken down so much to a point where you don't know that you can get out, you don't believe that you can make it. it I mean, it, again, it's just, it's so difficult to just leave, you know? And if you think about it this way, an example, when I put it this way, and then people seem to understand it better. If you put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it jumps out, which is what it would do, it recognizes that it's in danger, that this is hot, that they're at risk, so they are immediately trying to get out. But the thing about domestic violence is it's a gradual process. You don't go on your first date and the person puts their hands on you and you're just like, oh, snap, they're abusive, let me get out of here. If you put a frog in a pot of lukewarm water and you turn up the temperature a degree every day, every other day, that frog doesn't realize that it's in danger until it's too late because it's become accustomed to its environment. So you keep turning up that degree, you keep turning it up. And by the time it realizes that, look, oh my goodness, my life is at risk. It's it's been at risk. It just didn't know. So it's the same with domestic violence. So without lack of appropriate resources, without lack of education, and then you have just different varying barriers and unique barriers for communities of color, for underserved, marginalized population, when you don't have the right, you know, cultural resources. If there's a victim who speaks Spanish and you do, there's no Spanish speaking advocates at the shelter or you know, you call 911, you don't know how to ask for help if you're in the deaf blind community. I mean, it's just so many different barriers that survivors face. That's why it takes careful planning. It takes a, an experienced advocate working with that survivor. It takes having non judgmental family and friends who will do anything, whether it's holding their hand, giving them a hotline number, putting an emergency bag in their trunk, giving them money, you know what I mean? It it right. takes a community to help and to just put that on the survivor. Why don't you just get out? I, I'm years removed from an abusive relationship. And if I had to just pack up my life and start over today with nothing, I couldn't do it. So how do we do that to people who are experiencing rock bottom? And right. the thing about trauma and domestic violence in this particular particular example is that trauma literally changes the way your brain is wired. It literally changes the physiology of the brain and leaving a domestic violence relationship and breaking that trauma bond is likened to someone who is addicted, addicted to substances, trying to stop cold Turkey. It it is the same. It takes the same gumps, if you will. It takes the same effort to try to break that trauma bond as it does for someone who is addicted to substances to stop. 
immediately right this minute. Like everything that you said, like it, it's definitely involved. Like, and I think that if people were to just sit back for a moment, they would realize that this is not something that, you know, anyone can just get out of. Right. I think that people fail to realize, you know, a lot of the obstacles and barriers that come up, you know, just in general. Right. So forget the fact that you're dealing with a trauma, you're dealing with, you know, an act of emergency. And that it's not, you know, just the easiest thing to get up and go. I mean, I think about just on a regular basis, just thinking about, you know, planning and moving and, and doing things that don't involve um, trauma and how how difficult it is, right? I think that people, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's uh, the victim blaming. That's something that I know that um, has been discussed in the past. I'm not really sure what it is, um, but I feel like people... For the most part, they don't give the same grace that they would to an individual who's maybe, you know, starting over for the first time that's not dealing with trauma. Um, they give them a different level of grace than it is with somebody who's going through an active, you know, an active traumatic experience. Um, so I think that with everything that you've said, the way that you broke it down, I hope that people can understand that this idea of just getting up and go, like if it's not that bad, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have stayed, I think is a bit ridiculous and, you know, a bit callous even. Um, so hopefully, you know, with the way that you really explained, you know, what, and this is not even necessarily, I would say like what a typical situation is, but what, you know, what are some of the things that individuals are going through when they're experiencing domestic violence that they'll maybe think twice about, you know, how they view these individuals and their situations. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it takes more of us having, as you said, empathy and compassion, mm -hmm. because even if we don't understand why a survivor stays or why they're ex accept, quote unquote, accepting this behavior, it it's just something that we have to just understand that the survivor is the expert in their situation. That's something I learned a long time ago. I remember going to this conference and the host was like, the survivor is the expert in the situation. Because when you think about it, whether you're a social worker or an advocate or whatever your, your lane is, the, when we leave for the day, those files are left on our desk. But that survivor is the one who has to live and navigate through it. When that survivor chooses to go through the criminal justice system and that person who has been abusing them gets out of jail the next day, the next week, even or if they even had to go to jail, then that survivor is the one who has to deal with those consequences when they go home. So mm -hmm. they're the ones who have to navigate every single day on egg walking on eggshells and many minds and time bombs and things like that, just trying to survive every single day. And that's draining. It's so draining. So we can't, we can't judge them for doing the best they can because we're all out here just doing the best we can. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, going along with some of the stereotypes or really trying to debunk and uh, demystify some of these, you know, myths and stereotypes around domestic violence, um, is there a certain gender or group that is more susceptible to domestic violence? Domestic violence doesn't have a face. It doesn't have a zip code. It doesn't have a certain bank account. It literally affects 
us all um, in the in the thought of statistics, it's one in three women and one in four men who will experience domestic violence with one in four women and one in four, one in seven men experiencing severe domestic violence, AKA intimate partner violence. It affects the LGBT community. It's affecting our youth. Statistically, that is 1.5 million high school students in the US experience domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So it's happening to people in our family, it's happening to our friends, it's happening to our neighbors, it's happening to people at our favorite grocery store, it's happening to our youth in our local high schools, it's happening to everyone. It doesn't matter your education level, what your financial background is. I've talked to survivors from stay-at-home moms to stay-at-home dads to first ladies of churches where the pastor was the abuser. I've talked to doctors, I've talked to professors, surgeons, even domestic violence prosecutors who would go and prosecute domestic violence cases and then talk to me after court about how they can't leave their own domestic violence situation. Wow. Wow. So it, it doesn't matter. I've seen the men who are six foot two and their abuser was their five foot four wife. Some of the worst cases I've seen have been men. It's I've seen where the LGBT community, where they're feeling like their their experience is not as valid because society has it convinced, has convinced us all that it's just women and men and that the woman is the victim and the man is the aggressor. And it just it's not in this neat little box. It's not black and white. There's so much gray area, so much color in it, you know, and you can't just walk into a Walmart and just pick out who the victims are and who the abusers are. You just you don't know. Right, right. It has no face, like you said. It could be anyone, literally. Exactly. So I know that we talked a little bit about, you know, your story um, at the beginning of this show, but I kind of want to get a little deeper, if, you know, if you're willing, um, sure. with respect to your story, like, you know, you know, like what, what happened, right? How did you get out? Because I know that with this show, you know, we have people from all over that tune in. And so even if they might not necessarily be the ones experiencing domestic violence, someone that's tuning in knows someone that is experiencing domestic violence. And so I think when we're, when we share our stories, um, it gives hope to those, you know, who are, you know, looking for hope. So if you can talk to us a little bit more about, you know, your story, um, you know, what happened. And then I think maybe getting into then how and why you became an advocate for domestic violence. Yes, definitely. So with my story, I met my ex. He was the brother. He is the brother of a former coworker. And she and I were working together at a law firm at the time. And I was about five or six months out of my last relationship when she began telling me that she wanted to introduce me to her brother. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the time I was just like, eh, I just got out of something, you know, five months or so ago and wasn't really looking into meeting anybody new. So she would just push the issue every now and then jokingly and saying she thought we would be cute together, that he was attractive. She's like, you're pretty, you know, 
you're funny, he's funny, you both like to dance, <laughs> just things where she thought that we would make a good match. So she wound up having a birthday party and I met him there and we hit it off. And everything she said, as far as what she thought would attract us to one another did so. And at the end of the night, he asked me for my phone number. And at the time I declined, just citing the fact that again, I had re had recently gotten out of a relationship um, that was for many years and just wasn't sure I was ready to explore anything else. Later that night, I rethought that decision. And I said, well, you know what, why not move on? You know, it's okay to go out and have a good time and enjoy yourself. So I reached back out to my then coworker and asked her to exchange our numbers with one another. So in the first couple of months, it was great. I mean, it, this was before, as I say, Netflix and chill. This was more like Redbox and, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, just, um, hey, what you doing? You want to get a movie kind of thing? And he had a good job, Was a appeared to be a great dad to his girls and, you know, understood the the time constraints that I had as a mother of two children. So I wouldn't really see him until after my children went to sleep because I didn't want to bring men around my kids mm -hmm. or every other weekend when they were with their dad. So it just, I mean, it started off great. And then one day, some months in to us talking and casually dating, we weren't at a place where we said, oh, you know, we're definitely together. It was just still in that new phase. Mm -hmm. And he confronted me about some text messages that he read in my phone between myself and my child's father. And they weren't even really messages that he should have been angry about. And I found myself explaining these messages. It was about co-parenting. Co and he expressed that he didn't co-parent with his children's mother like that. He, he didn't feel comfortable in how comfortable we were talking to one another. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, that should have been a red flag there, but I didn't take it as such. And, and the red flag being that he didn't talk to his children's mother, like just as simple as co-parenting things and that she didn't allow him to know where they lived, that he had to pick his own children up at, they met at like a Walmart parking lot or something mm -hmm. like that. And I didn't, the way he phrased it, it didn't just ring bells to me, but what should have rang bells to me was that the fact that he went through my phone in the first place. Right. And so from what pers what per happened from then, it was just, hey, he didn't trust me. So it was little things like the control, you know, why did the phone ring four times instead of two times? Who did you have over? Were you on the other line with someone that you, you didn't want to pick up for me? It was the isolation Oh, you do. I know you do spoken word, but I, bar I barely get to see you. Do you have to go to an open mic tonight? I just love spending so much time with you. And that's that love bombing, you know, just sharing you with that attention and that affection and then slowly isolating you from the things that and the hobbies and the passions that you enjoyed. So I found myself distancing myself from the things that I love to do, mm -hmm. you know, and my family, for the most part, was in New Jersey. My father's here in Virginia. But it was, I found myself not even talking to my family and my friends as much. So then it was the, you know, why do you, who, why are you smiling at that person? Or you laughed a little too hard at that joke. And so just start making you 
walk on eggshells, you know, and then it was the gaslighting and gaslighting is a very effective form of psychological and emotional abuse where it's used to make the victim question their perception of reality and or judgment. Mm -hmm. So when he would say little things like that would be offensive, maybe like if I asked a question, well, it didn't take a genius to get that answer. Like, duh, you don't get it. Right. And if I took offense to it, then he's like, well, you know, I'm just joking. You're so sensitive. You're overreacting. You want to pick a fight. I know you had a rough day. I know you're stressed out. So I'm just going to let it slide that you're just trying to pick a fight with me. So the whole purpose of doing that is to make you question if you're tripping, to make you question Mm -hmm. if you're just being extra, you know? So then when it became the blatant verbal abuse, it's the name calling, oh, you're nobody wants you. You got two kids, two different fathers. What? I'm the only person who wanted you. I'm the only person who would deal with you or someone like you. And you're in this dead end job at this law firm in this cubicle. You're not going anywhere. Nobody wants to hear your poetry. And then if I took offense to that, then it's, oh, I was just joking or, oh, you know, you, I had a bad day and you want to pick this fight with me or, oh, you know, that when you said this, this made me mad. I'm just reacting to you. You know, so mm-hmm. then again, once they break you mentally, the rest is easy. So now I'm sorry. I was already in a vulnerable place when I started talking to him. I had already not given myself that time to heal and find my value and my worth. And I was already blaming myself for the relationships that failed prior to. So I was like, he's right. It is me. It didn't work out with my kids that I am in this dead end job. Maybe if I was you know, smarter, or maybe if I was prettier, or maybe if I was this, or maybe if I was less of that, then I wouldn't be where I am today. You know what I mean? And by the time it got physical, I still hadn't recognized that I was in an abusive relationship because I had it misconstrued that domestic violence was just, it was physical and that it looked a certain way and it affected a certain type of people. And I would never let somebody put their hands on me. That's what I always would say growing up. I wish somebody would put their hands on me. I'm Mm -hmm. out. I would never. And, but that's that gradual, that's that frog in the pot of lukewarm water getting turned up every now and then every other day. So by the time the first time he put his hands on me, I had been in an abusive relationship. I was consistently being degraded emotionally and psychologically and verbally. I was being controlled. I was being gaslighted. I was just a shell of myself. And when he put his hands on me for the first time, it was just so vicious. I mean, he, and I fought back and that was another way I rationalized it with myself. Oh, domestic violence. That's a victim cowering in a corner. I fought back. I'm from Jersey. I squared up. So this isn't me. So even though, you know, he fought me like I was a man off the street, even though he strangled me. And for the listeners, if your partner has strangled you in the past, you are 10 times more likely to be killed by that partner. Wow. And a lot of people, we, a lot of times they'll use the words choking and strangulation interchangeably. And it's very Mm -hmm. different. Choking is an internal force blocking your airways where strangulation is an external force. So whether that's hands, a belt, a scarf, or something externally preventing you from being able to breathe. And the fact that he strangled me, our very first physical encounter, 
it's just years later learning that like, oh, wow, that's a whole felony. And I literally could have lost my life, not even just seconds or minutes later, but days, weeks later, because the after effects of strangulation is so vast, it's so severe, it's so dangerous. Hmm. And years, I just went into this really, I just dealt with that for years at the point where, you know, I, it was hard to get away from him because at this place during that whole time when it became physical, I was going through a financial situation and I lost my home. And I had sent my children who to live with their dad who lives in the area, but I had sent my children to live with my youngest child's father. So at this place, I'm I'm homeless, essentially. I was embarrassed to tell my family what was going on. I didn't know that what I was experiencing was abuse or I didn't want to accept that it was and then here I am bouncing from place to place, trying to save money to get my kids back. And he offers me a place to stay so I can save money. So he, he started physically abusing me once I moved in with him. Mm-hmm. So when I, le- when I tried to leave, I was afraid to go to a shelter and then I tried to call a shelter. And then they told me I wasn't in enough danger because I hadn't been assaulted that particular night. So it's, again, it's just so many barriers when you're a survivor trying to get help and then you're not finding that help. So to fast forward to the last time he assaulted me, I mean, it was the worst. It was, I was working overtime and uh, it was a Saturday. And ironically, my job, we were throwing a banquet. We were taking part in decorating a banquet hall for a domestic violence shelter. Mm -hmm. And um, I sent him pictures of the banquet hall, how beautiful it was dressed. It looked like a wedding, something out of a magazine. And when he saw the picture, he said, who are those two guys in the picture? And I said, what guys? And when you look in the picture, zoom in, you could see two guys carrying in a table way in the corner. And I was just like, I don't know who they are. And he accused me of going to work so I could see those two guys. So I went to his house. I just we it, what happened? We an argument ensued. I left work, went to his house to pick up my belongings, and that was the worst of the physical assaults. And I didn't fight back that time because I was so tired of fighting. And it, I just prayed to God. Just I was already depressed. I was already going through anxiety, suicidal thoughts. I already had written letters to my children and my mother and my sisters and just said, look, I can't do this anymore. So God, you might as well just take me now because living in this is hell. Mm -hmm. So I would rather just be up there with you in heaven because this isn't working for me. And when that was all said and done, he kissed me on my forehead. He, I remember screaming, saying, look at me. I had on a t-shirt for my employer at the time. I said, I was at work, I was working. And he kissed me on my forehead and told me I seemed upset and offered me one of his daughter's juice boxes. And I grabbed as much as I could and I went to my son's soccer game. And then later that night when I went to the emergency room because I was in so much pain, I found out I had broken ribs, a concussion, just a plethora of bruises just everywhere. And I still went back because I had nowhere else to go. I wouldn't leave until months, months later when during an argument, after he started going to therapy, because that's what I tell people, the last time he physically assaulted me wasn't the last time he abused me. I still, even after his therapy, I'm still going through the verbal abuse, the emotional, the psychological, the gaslighting, the control. And it wasn't until years, I'm sorry, months later when we were arguing and he's accusing me of sleeping around or doing this and that. And 
during the course of that argument, he called my mother and my sisters the N-word. Mm-hmm. And why that's key is because this was an interracial relationship. Oh, wow. Yeah. I always say that part last, you know, because and so, so because it's it's the catalyst to why I left, what started the process. I had tried to leave prior to. There were times when I told myself I left and I'm not coming back and I'll always go back. But that and mind you, his daughters were half black. He only dated black women. You know, so when I have my coworkers saying, oh, you guys would be a perfect match. And so for this man to tell me that and that that's the thing going through abuse is so traumatizing. It's so degrading, but it is another layer when you are a black woman and you have a white man calling you a dumb black bitch, mm-hmm. excuse my language. I don't want to sugarcoat it. Cause this is what's happening. You know, right. it was calling you a worthless black bee. Like, you know, just that as a whole level, a whole nother level of just, just making you feel like the lowest of the low. So mm. I was ashamed as a woman. I was ashamed as a mother. I was ashamed as a daughter, a sister, but I was ashamed as a black woman. It, it just, I was just like, oh my gosh, my great, 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 greats are probably like turning over in their grave right now, you know, and mm-hmm. it just added a, a totally different layer of shame. So what made me become an advocate was because I didn't even know I was getting into advocacy when I first started sharing my story. But what made me start Growth Foundation is because, again, when I tried to do more and help, and then for people to tell me, well, you don't have the right experience because you don't have a degree, I felt it was just another person, another part of the system telling me that my voice didn't matter. Right. And then remembering what it was like to be that survivor trying to get help. And if you don't fit in a certain box, sometimes, you know, here, a lot of the agencies operate off imminent danger. And I know you can only do as much as you can do with what you have. So being an advocate now, I understand that. But when you're in that situation and you're terrified and you call a shelter for the first time and you're asked if you were beat that night, and then you say, no, I, I wasn't, but I'm scared to go home. And then they say, well, I'm sorry, you're not in imminent danger. So you're basically telling me I'm not scared enough. Right. So I wanted to do what I could to provide support to agencies, but mainly to survivors. So we're, we operate in the gray area in that if a survivor calls us and they say, you know, I tried to go to the shelter in my area, they're full or they said, I'm not in imminent danger, but upon our intake application and we determine they are at risk, we'll put them in a hotel for a few days so we can have more time to advocate for them. So then now I'm calling the agencies like, hey, this is Nisha with Grow. We got such a such survivor in a hotel until Monday. What can we do to get them to safety starting Monday going forward? Mm-hmm. So that's how we built it. We can help with the getting them an Uber to the police department to file a police report or to the magistrate's office to file a protective order. We can help get them food and clothes. We can help with if people donate old cell phones and we can help them get a cell phone temporarily because theirs was broken in the last physical attack. You know, we help in that middle area so that they can help, you know, get through, they can have support through this crisis because you just don't know what to do. 
Right. You know, so and the, the agency is doing the work. They need help. They can't do it by themselves. So even though we don't have a shelter, I'm really proud of us. We're six years old. And just to be able to stand boots to the ground at the forefront and build such amazing relationships with the agencies in the community, but also with the survivors and the community members themselves. Mm-hmm. It just it just means a lot. I mean, I I am today I have like at a loss of a lot of words, but the work that your organization is doing again, I can't say this enough is critical. And I think that piece about not being in imminent danger and essentially, you know, victims having to go back to these traumatic situations because, you know, either there's a lack of resources or because again, you know, agencies are are turning them away. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand because I remember when I was working um, in the DA's office as a domestic violence prosecutor, a lot of times, you know, we would try to see if we can get individuals into shelters and it, it would not be successful, even when they came to move forward or at least, you know, uh, inquire, I would often say, about pressing charges against their abuser. Um, we would see them with their black and blues. We would see them, you know, in, in their most vulnerable and fragile state. We would see them scared. But even even then at that moment, um, they, oftentimes we could not place them into a shelter. We could not, you know, place them into to a safe, um, safe environment. Um, a lot of times they came in to file a, a complaint and then leave to go back to that situation, even though there were orders of protections and whatnot. But a lot of what you said, you know, not having a place to go, not wanting to tell family members um, because of the shame experienced, um, a lot of that is real. And so I think the work that your organization is doing, being kind of like that conduit, that that safe house, in a sense, I think is so important. And I would love for you to be able to share with us the information to your organization um, so that, you know, people who are tuning in can donate um, to, you know, to providing, you know, hotel rooms, providing Ubers, providing resources um, in these, you know, for these, especially in these critical moments. Thank you. Yes, Grow Foundation. We can be found at www.growfoundationva, that's VA like Virginia, .org. So that's www.growfoundationva.org. We have a lot of great information on the website. We talk about our programs, which our three main programs is crisis intervention, which has the subprograms of homelessness prevention, which is where we do the emergency hotel lodging. And then we have the survivor sustainability that I spoke of where we're assisting with clothes and food and toiletries and helping to get to police departments and the doctor's office and things like that. We also have a counseling program. It's a monthly domestic violence survivor support group, which meets monthly at a boxing gym that I attend. That once I got out of that relationship, something that also helped me in my survivor journey, because you have to find your thing that helps you heal through trauma, was boxing. So I've been with my boxing coach for years. They're very instrumental in just all this work that I do. And in this support group, 
is facilitated by myself and a licensed professional counselor for the first hour. And then the second hour, the survivors receive a boxing training. And then we also do a lot of community outreach and awareness. So our website definitely has all of our social media and contact information and also how you can donate. Okay. All right. Yeah, definitely. Because I, you know, from, from the work that you're doing, I'm like, I know that, you know, donations, funding is definitely, um, you know, some, I mean, definitely something I, I think um, the organization would benefit from so that you guys can help more, uh, you know, victims of domestic violence. And so I want to kind of pivot a little bit to talk about what we can do, those of us who are not experiencing domestic violence, but we are, you know, we have friends, we have family members, we have loved ones who we either know or suspect are dealing with domestic violence. There are situations where, uh, you know, victims have come and approached friends and family members, but sometimes, you know, we either say the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing, and we want to make sure that we are not engaging in a practice that's re-traumatizing, you know, our loved ones. We want to make sure that we are being effective, that we're not being judgmental, and that we're really, you know, providing whatever assistance that we can that won't also jeopardize their situation. So, you know, what could we do if if we are uh, either approached by a loved one who's asking for help or we suspect that someone is experiencing domestic violence? That is a great, great question. And just to throw it out there, that's also on our website as well. We have a page that that is dedicated to what says my friend or family member is being abused. What can I do? And I think it's important that we ask ourselves that and our friends and our family members, because it's all about having a trauma-informed, survivor-centered conversation. So the first thing I would say is, please don't say, why don't you just leave? We talked about that earlier, about how judgmental that is and accusatory it is and how stressful it is because you already have, you have a survivor who's already hearing at home what they can't do right, what they're doing wrong all the time. So when you say something like, well, why don't you just leave? It's just doing the same thing. And it puts that wall up. It's about knowing how to ask the question. So instead of saying that, you could say, I'm I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about you and the kids. What are the barriers preventing you from getting to safety? And how can I help you overcome those barriers? So it's it's an open-ended question, giving the survivor that space to safely share their story, share their truth and their fear. So if a survivor says something like, you know what, I really want to get out, but he or she monitors my phone. I can't do safety planning. I can't do this. I can't do that. Then it could be something as, look, you know, how about I get you a prepaid phone? Or how about you come to my house and make these calls? You know what I mean? So it's about setting up time to just talk privately and confidentially. Now, if a survivor comes to you and says, I'm going to harm myself or my and or my children just to get out this situation. And of course, you know, you got to do what you have to do as far as alerting proper authorities. But when a survivor comes to you and talks to you confidentially, it is important that they feel like that they can trust you. Right. It's important to encourage conversations, but not push. So not say things like, well, just talk to me, just talk to me. I don't understand why you won't just open up because it's, it's hard to even admit it to yourself, but you want me to say it out loud too. 
You know what I mean? So just operate at the survivor's pace. You can't pass judgment on them or place blame or guilt because trust me when I tell you they're already blaming themselves. Mm -hmm. They already feel guilty themselves. So you can help them by helping to create a safety plan. And that is just an individualized, customized plan for a survivor to be able to leave their situation as safely as they can. It is important. It is so important to have a safety plan. It doesn't 100% deter an abuser from being able to harm their victim, but it helps put some a plan into action to help them leave as safely and as quietly as possible. So maybe if you're helping to put away $5 here or $5 there, for a survivor, if you help them get their paperwork in order as far as birth certificates, social security cards, insurance papers, any child support or, or custody paperwork, any important paperwork that a survivor may need when they're looking to leave that situation and keeping that safe for them. If you allow them to send you pictures or if you document, look, I saw Nicole today, she had bruises on her wrist. I asked what mm -hmm. happened and she said she tripped and fell, but she also said she tripped and fell a month ago. Right. You know, documenting these, this information, encourage outside help, give a hotline number. It takes Google. Google is free. Googling domestic violence agency and put in your zip code, knowing the domestic, the national domestic violence hotline number, which is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. And when you go to these resources, which I have a resource page on my website for resources local to my area, but also national resources. And you think about these resource pages, when you go to those pages, there's more resources. So it's just a domino effect mm -hmm. of resources. It's about being supportive. Even if you don't understand their decisions, you have to respect their decisions. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that the survivor is the expert in their situation. You don't have to live through what they're living through. So you're on the outside looking in. So it's important just to be that, that safe space because home isn't safe. Right. So if, they, if, if that 10 minute conversation at a local Starbucks in a private corner, talking quietly over a cup of coffee or hot chocolate is their only safe space, then do what you can to give that to them. And lastly, just remember self-care for yourself Having a friend or a family member, someone you care about, a coworker, whoever, go through something as traumatic as that is, is emotionally draining. And it can get you to a point where you experience compassion fatigue, where you're just tired to the point where you're just like, okay, we've been going at this for months. I'm hearing the same story. Mm -hmm. I remember my ex's sister said that to me. And just since talking to you and saying, I just remember her saying, this is toxic. And I can't hear anymore because you keep going back and you're nothing I say, you keep going back to it. And I just didn't think about that. She probably was just tired of hearing it. Like she just gave advice after advice after advice. And I just kept dumping it on her. And that's hard. So you have to remember to take care of yourself and, and create boundaries as needed because that survivor is probably going to go back. However many times before they finally leave, if they ever leave. And you can't put that on yourself. You can't save them. All you can do is plant the seed. So whether that seed, we don't plant a bushel of 
roses outside and then go back tomorrow, Sunday and say, oh my gosh, my roses aren't here. That's not how it works. You have to plant the seed and continue to pour into it and to continue to feed it and continue to just hope and, and do your best to take care of it and hope that something you did will bloom something beautiful from it. So it's the same with survivors. You just plant that seed and hope that something you said or did sticks with them a day later, a month later, a year later. And trust me when I tell you it does, whether you're planting that seed of hope and empowerment or that seed of negativity and judgment, whatever side of the fence you choose to be on, trust me when I say it sticks. So you just, you got to decide to be whether you're going to be the fountain or the drain. I love a quote and that's one of my favorite quotes. Decide if you're going to be a fountain or a drain. I love that quote. I definitely love that quote because I think that a lot of people, I guess they find themselves with that question, right? They don't know what they want to be or they don't know what they should be. Um, But I think that breaking it down in the way that you did hopefully will give people some clarity and some understanding as how to um, be there for somebody that they love who is in need. And so the last question I have for you is, man, maybe, maybe some of this was already answered with um, how we can, you know, better support and better be there for our loved ones. But I guess, how can the community really raise better awareness for domestic violence? Because I know every October, there are domestic violence campaigns, you know, everywhere. And, and I do appreciate a good awareness month because I think it, it gives us the opportunity to bring things to the forefront. But how can we, you know, raise better awareness knowing that domestic violence occurs 365 days a year? Great question. Um, yeah, it's important to know that domestic violence happens outside of October 1st through the 31st, mm-hmm. you know. And it's important to have conversations like this. It's important for listeners, whoever listens to this podcast, to listen to conversations like this and engage in conversations. How, as a community, we can help is one, just refusing to be quiet, refusing to just stand by an idol and refusing to do nothing because that shouldn't be an option. We all can do something. So even if it's volunteering at your local domestic violence agency, they often have things like car washes or toiletry drives or food donation drives, things like that, that helps. It's donating money. It's donating tangible items, whether it's hygiene products for women and men, whether it's lobbying in your community, learning about your local and state laws as it pertains to domestic violence, because a lot of the laws need need updating, need to be Mm -hmm. abolished and have new ones come on board because they're just too lax oftentimes. And it's often a reason why survivors opt not to go through the criminal justice process. It's calling out your friends and family or yourself if that behavior is toxic, if it's unhealthy. You know what I mean? It's believing survivors. It's offering support. It's promoting more resources, contacting your local again agency and saying, what can I do to help? Can I host an event at my church? It's understanding that domestic violence doesn't just look a certain way. So yes, it's happening in church. Yes, it's happening in schools. Yes, it's happening in the street. And not, if we were walking past something, not just taking out your phone and recording it and posting it on social media, like, wow, I I wish somebody was there to help. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. just refusing to be in 
a silent person, a, a bystander, and refusing to take action. When we were looking at this stuff on social media and in the movies and everything, I think a lot of it, a lot of the reasons why we're so desensitized to violence as a whole, because it's right here in our face. Again, mm -hmm. I'm a mother of two. When I was my daughter's age, I could not go online or didn't know that I could go online and just find videos of people being assaulted and murdered and on, on social media. Like, it's just crazy what our youth and our generations that are coming up have been, have had put in front of their face that it's just mm -hmm. nothing to them. Right. It's having conversations with our daughters and our sons about what healthy boundaries look like. Find out what their version of a healthy relationship is, not just with their partners, but with their friends or with themselves. Find out how they talk to themselves. Mm -hmm. Find out how they talk to their friends, how they accept being talked to by their friends. And, and it starts with these conversations. It just boils down to that in the beginning, the conversation and then going from there. Right. Right. No. And I definitely agree with everything that you said. I think that conversations definitely are important because again, you know, we sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And so having these conversations to really, you know, give us that, that awareness, give us that language um, and hopefully give us that, um, that direction on how we can then, you know, do greater things to raise awareness, I think is important. Definitely, you know, donating, whether it's money or in-kind services, in-kind uh, items um, is critical. And so I want you one more time to just give your, your website and how people can actually donate uh, to the work that you're doing. Yes. The website is www.growfoundationva.org. There's a tab on the page that says support grow. And when you go to that tab, it says donate. And then we also have a tab for corporate sponsors. If you're a business and just want to sow into the organization and a great cause, which is also a tax write-off, we, we're looking for corporate sponsors as well. Our donations have, we break down how your money helps. Everything from where $250 can help with emergency hotel lodging for a survivor and their children for 48 to 72 hours. $100 can help buy groceries for a family of one to four $50 basic hygiene and toiletry necessities, even $25 helps provide that gas card or that gift card for Uber or Lyft just so a survivor can get to where they need to go. There's literally no amount that is too small, okay. you know, and just whatever you can do, whenever you can do it, just know that it's greatly appreciated, not just for myself and my team, but for the survivors and the families that we work to help bring the safety every single day. Okay. Now, do you have a social media presence? Are you on Instagram at all? Because sometimes, you know, people are more into the Instagrams than they are um, yes. the websites. Yes, I am on Instagram. Our Instagram page is grow underscore VA. And my personal Instagram page is Nisha in as a Nancy E-I, S as in Sam, H-A, underscore Christine, my middle name. We also have Facebook, which you can find us under Grow Foundation. And we have Twitter as well, which is under Grow Foundation One, the number one. And I also have a TikTok. And I was like, hey, I'm not getting a TikTok. 
<laughs> I was like, let's stay, what happens on TikTok stays on TikTok. But I started TikTok specifically for the purpose of bringing awareness to domestic violence. And it's really going over well, which I am grateful and surprised, but I'm on TikTok under Nisha's voice. Okay. TikTok, you know, we, I had a conversation with, uh, with a friend of mine last week because I too am very kind of like, I don't know about TikTok, but apparently TikTok is out here changing lives, providing resources. It's, it's surprising to me as well, how much of a resource, um, TikTok is. So, (laughs) so I totally get you on that. Yeah. It's really, I'll just share a quick clips about my story or I may share like a post about gaslighting or Mm -hmm. different forms of abuse is really about education and just the people who have reached out and just said, I didn't even know that what I went through was that, you know what I mean? It's just, it shows again, the conversation, the importance of it. Right. Well, Nisha, I, again, thank you so much for just, you know, taking the time to be with us, to being vulnerable, sharing your story and again, just for starting this organization that I know has changed lives and will continue to change lives. So I just thank you again for just being the advocate that you are, the person that you are, and for taking the time again. You know, I always appreciate when my guests take time to come on and just share and empower, you know, our listeners. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And so everyone, thank you again for tuning into another episode of According to RP on WJMS Media, powered by Black Ivy Media. It's your girl, Rita Pierre, your host. And as always, I will talk to you guys next week. You were listening to According to RP on WJMS Radio. About time you tuned in. Tune in each and every Sunday. I can't wait to come back. Seven. 